Welcome to the RNA Outdoors podcast, fueled by Ripcord Arrowrest and First Light Hunting Apparel. At RNA, we are public land DIY conservationists that love to share our passion for the outdoors. So join us and our team as we interview professionals in the industry to share insight knowledge that helps make hunters and anglers more successful. Any further ado, we're going to talk elk hunting. How many elk hunters do we have here? Excellent. That is awesome. I appreciate you coming out. I appreciate Randy's very kind words and his friendly banter to get us kicked off. Um, sometimes I think it's more entertaining to listen to him talk than it is to actually talk about hunting. Talking about hunting with Randy is incredibly entertaining. So I've been blessed to hunt with him a couple times and just can't find a, a nicer man and a, and a greater man to spend a week hunting. But we're going to talk about elk hunting today, and not elk hunting with Randy, because that involves too much Dairy Queen for us to get through anything important. So I talk about success. And when it comes to elk hunting and when it comes to hunting success, I don't want to be the, the one who defines that for anybody else. But today as we talk about it, we're going to talk about success in terms of filling tags. And that doesn't mean that an elk hunt isn't successful if you don't fill a tag. Uh, for some, it's just to hear an elk bugle the first time. For others, it's to kill a 300-inch bull. Whatever it may be, you define success. But for today's definition and what we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about things that lead to actually filling an elk tag and being successful in that way. Now, before we do, I want to point out one really important thing. That is the fact that hunting success for elk on public land do-it-yourself type hunts is about 10%. And to illustrate something very important, I want everyone who bought an elk tag last season to stand up. I love that. 
even going to do a rough count. There's just a lot. Okay, if you did not fill your elk tag last year, go ahead and sit down. Okay, I'd say we're a little better than 10%. Okay, if you, hold on, stay standing if you filled your tag last year. If you shot a cow or a spike last year, go ahead and sit down. If you shot a raghorn, three, four point, go ahead and sit down. If you shot a five point last season, go ahead and sit down. Okay, so those who are standing, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and maybe we'll say a couple in the back there as well, out of, I don't know, a couple hundred people, okay, go ahead and sit down if you shot six point or bigger. Just use that to illustrate in this room, the success rate was higher than 10%. To kill a six-point bull, it's incredibly low. And I don't say that to scare anyone or to set expectations for anyone. I say that because average is just that. It's average. And the averages or the odds really don't matter if you're willing to put in work. I've heard a, a quote that says, 100% of the population has desires, but only 10% of the population has ambition. And I think that's why hunting success rates are 10%. I think that's why business success rates are 10%. It takes hard work. And if you aren't willing to put in hard work, you can't expect to be successful. There's a, another quote, I don't know if it's, yeah, right there. Yeah, I'm a million dollar dream with a minimum wage work ethic. When it comes to elk hunting, minimum wage work ethic isn't gonna cut it. It's gonna take hard work to be successful. I don't know that anyone was born with a, a gift to be an elk hunter. Sure, you can be a good caller, you can be a good shot with a bow, you can be in great shape, all of these things that contribute to it. But at the end of the day, that really doesn't matter. What matters is how hard you're willing to work. And I love to, to share experiences and I love to share tactics that will help people be successful because in settings like this, you're here for a reason. It's April. We've got turkey season and bear season opening tomorrow, but you're here on a Saturday afternoon listening to a, an old bald guy Talk about elk hunting, because you want to improve. And that simple fact alone is gonna propel you to higher success than average. And there's no difference between you and average unless you're willing to work harder than average. So with that being said, we're gonna talk about some tactics. And we're gonna talk about a few things that I feel contribute to elk hunting success, and possibly some of the most important things that can contribute to it. But before we do, I want you to think about all the times you've been elk hunting and have not been successful. What are the reasons? Go ahead and raise a hand and shout out some things. What are, what are some of the reasons you've not been successful in the past? You were in the wrong place. Wrong place? Thick brush. Thick brush? Impatient. Impatient? Didn't scout? Not enough time? What was that one? Wind. Wind? Wind. In elk hunting? Wind is important? Okay. So you say cattle? Yes. Cattle, what else? No plan B. No plan B? A branch anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Get a branch, drew at the wrong time, moved at the wrong time. I mean, there's a million things against us, right? And a lot of those things have to come together for us to be successful. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, gear failure, my, my bow, you know, something happened to that, the sight broke, or my rifle, you know, the scope got knocked off, or, you know, whatever it is, other hunters, Public land hunting, how many times have you ran into another hunter on public land? Is it frustrating? Yeah, it's frustrating. 
but it's also encouraging at the same time because we have that public land that any of us can go out on and hunt. But it creates some frustrations and some difficulties, right? What about wolves? Anybody ever hunted where there's wolves? Oh, yeah. They cause any problems every once in a while? Okay. I want to I wanna maybe go from this at a different angle. The reason you weren't successful wasn't for any of those reasons. It was because of you. Let me flip that around. The reason you're going to be consistently successful isn't because of any of those reasons. It's because of you. Okay? Those things might seem like they're out of your control, but really, nothing in elk hunting is out of your control. You mentioned wind. Is wind out of your control? No. Well. Well, yeah. You can, if you can control the wind. <laughs> no, but I will. I'm going to talk about a few things that they may seem out of our control, but we've got to take control. If we want to be successful, it's in our hands. It's in your hands. Each one of you individually, success is in your hands. Don't worry about the odds. The odds are for average people. They're not for you. And you don't have to settle for average. If you're willing to put in some work, if you're willing to invest a Saturday afternoon to come and listen, hoping to glean just one little thing that will make you a slightly better elk hunter, you're going to be a better elk hunter. So let's jump into it. Four categories of elk hunters. Number one, those who have never elk hunted before, but want to. Number two, those who have elk hunted before, but have never filled a tag. Number three, those who have elk hunted and maybe filled a tag or two or three, but just aren't quite yet consistent. And then the fourth group, those who fill their tag pretty much every year. And I think it's important to understand which group we're in. If we want to get better, we've got to know what group we're in and take a realistic look at that, and then look at what it takes to get to the next group. The reason I say that, I did a survey on elk101.com a while back, and I asked, I think there were about five or 6,000 respondents to the survey, so a good mix. It wasn't just six of my good friends. A good mix. And I asked them, each of those four categories, which one they fit in, and then for those who hadn't been successful, what they felt they needed to work most on in order to be successful, for those who had been successful, what had contributed most to their success. And it was amazing to see the variance in answers from each of those groups. So, for instance, those who, this one is successful but not consistently successful. So those who have been successful but not every year said that the number one thing that contributed to their success was locating elk. Number two was planning. Number three was elk hunting knowledge. The really interesting part of that was that group who had been consistently successful, so you'll see 21%, 19%, 16% on that. Those who had been consistently successful, almost 30% said that elk hunting knowledge contributed most to their success. So elk hunting knowledge is important, and we're going to talk about a little bit of that. First, though, I want to talk about failure. Failure is part of elk hunting, so I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to talk about physical conditioning because that's a part of elk hunting. I want to talk about elk knowledge because that's what consistent, successful elk hunters feel contributes most to their success. And then I can't talk about elk or elk hunting without talking about calling. So I'm talk about that. Now I'm going to go through it real fast because we're supposed to be done at four. I was told that I could stay in here as long as I wanted, <laughs> just in case somebody was listening. So we can stay afterwards and uh, do some Q&A and, and talk a little bit. But I do want to get through some of this. When it comes to failures, you're going to fail every single day that you elk hunt. I promise you, there will not be a single day when you do not fail. But that failure is temporary until we let it become permanent. 
When I talk about failing on a daily basis, those are mistakes we make. Those are things that happen that prevent us from being successful. And even on the days when I'm successful, I've probably failed 10 to 20 times getting to that point, even if it's in the first 30 minutes of the hunt. Elk hunting is tough. There are so many things that can go wrong and so many things that do go wrong, and those failures are a part of it. If we are not mentally ready to accept that and recognize that, that's going to beat us up. After day after day after day of failing and having things go wrong mentally, we're ready to throw in the towel. So it's so important to recognize that those failures are a part of elk hunting and that they're temporary and that we learn from them because there's nothing like making the same mistake over and over and over. That's not going to bring success. We've got to learn from it. We've got to see what went wrong and we've got to correct it. I like the last one. Success seems to be connected with action. Successful people keep moving. They make mistakes, but they don't quit. And when it comes to elk hunting, we've got to adopt that. We've got to be ready and willing to recognize that we're making mistakes and then fix it. So a couple of the common failures. By the way, those are little tiny sticks during the middle of the day when I was sitting bored waiting for an elk to bugle in New Mexico with Randy Newberg. Hunting <laughs> with that guy makes you hate elk. It's frustrating. I can't tell you how many times I've sat on the hillside and said, I hate elk. I love elk. They're my favorite animal. I love them, but I, they're so frustrating. Sometimes I hate them. And that day was one of those days. So a couple common failures. Mentioned wind over here. Is there anybody here who has not been fouled up by the wind when elk hunting? Thank you. It means we have honest people in the room. Wind is a huge part of elk hunting. In fact, I think it's probably the most important thing to pay attention to when we're elk hunting. Uh, calling, as much as I love calling, I would leave my calls at home and take a bottle of wind detector if I had to choose between the two, if I had to use wind detector to actually tell which way the wind was going. It's that important. Uh, another one is setting up behind obstacles. How many of us have been guilty of that? We, we want to hide, right? We're in camouflage. We want to hide from the elk when they're coming in, so we set up behind something because that hides us. That also blocks all shooting lanes when we're set up behind something. So making sure we find a place to set up where we're going to be concealed, but where we have shooting lanes in front of us. Setting up behind a tree, behind a brush, behind a rock is not a good setup. We want to make sure we're setting up in front of those obstacles and then making sure that our camouflage is doing its job to blend us in and we're doing our job not to move when we can see the elk's eye. If you can see an elk's eye, he is going to see you move. Little move. Reach up, put a diaphragm call in your mouth, he'll see that. But as long as you aren't moving, he's not going to necessarily pick you out if you're set up in a good spot. So just pay attention to your movement, move at the right time. When he turns his head, when he goes behind a tree, that's the time to draw your bow or to move to get set up or to move to get a shooting lane, not when he can see you. The other thing to keep in mind, elk can see 270 degrees. So as I'm standing right here, I can see a little behind me, a little behind me on that side looking straight ahead. When an elk's walking, they can see 45 degrees behind them without turning their head because of the way their eyes are set. So when an elk gets by you, he can be by you by 30 yards and you go to move, he's going to see that movement. And with a slight turn of his head, he can see 360 degrees. And they like movement. Well, they don't like movement. They like to see movement. That's what they're looking for. Not only being too aggressive or too timid, I'm an aggressive elk hunter. I'm an aggressive elk caller. And it, I think, provides and creates opportunities that otherwise wouldn't be there. But if you get too aggressive or you're aggressive at the wrong time, that aggression can be bad as well. But I really truly feel that if you notch up 
your aggressiveness when it comes to elk calling and elk hunting it's going to provide you with more opportunities and more success than if you were to become more timid and we'll talk about that when i get into calling a little bit last one is giving up and i just want to spend a minute talking about this i've got a family i've got three little children well not so little 15 13 and 11 uh, my wife is incredibly supportive and she's the reason i'm able to do what i do and after being gone for a week on day six, day seven, day eight, I miss them. And when you have all of these other failures going on, day after day, when you have to hunt with guys like Donnie, you wanna go home after like day two. <laughs> Kidding, of course. But there's a lot of things that wanna pull you away from that hunt. There's work piling up at home. You know, when you get home, you're gonna face all that. You've got your family. Maybe you talked to your wife the night before and the kids aren't being good and she's stressed out and she's trying to hold down the fort. And then you wake up the next morning and more hunters are there. You can't get an elk to bugle. You hear wolves howling, all these different things. And you want to give up. You want to go home early. I've been there. But I've also learned that if you go home early, you're not going to be successful. I can't tell you how many times on the last day of the hunt, sometimes the last evening or the last hour of the hunt, I've connected and been successful. And that was the only difference, just that I stuck it out. Nothing else magical happened. I didn't do anything different. Just my time to be successful was that last night. And had I left early, it wouldn't have happened. So making sure that we don't give up. Oh, that quote, many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Elk hunting is absolutely like that. You don't know when success is coming. We don't get to predict that. We just have to stay in the game, do our best, work hard until it happens. Speaking of working hard, physical conditioning and this is probably the most fit group of elk hunters that I've given a seminar to. Just looking out at you, this is a fit group. Congratulations. Elk hunting tough. Elk hunting is physically tough. Elk live in really rough country. They run up and down the mountains. When you shoot an elk, you find out how physically fit you really are. All of these things, to find elk, to keep up with elk, to call elk in, to pack elk out, everything requires some physical exertion. And I'm not gonna stand up here and say, you need to be spending five days a, a week for three hours a day in the gym, you need to be lifting weights, you need to be running marathons, that's, that's not what I'm here to talk about. What I'm talking about is your motivation to be stronger in September than you are right now. And whatever you're doing right now, do more. Your body will thank you in September. When you are successful, not if, when you are successful, you will find out every time that you should have done more. You will find out exactly what muscle group you should have worked out more, and don't forget that. Work it out. Think about the muscles that you're using. What, what are you gonna use to pack out an elk and to hunt elk? Legs, right? If you aren't working out, legs are boring. I hate working out legs. Okay, but biceps are not gonna kill elk. Legs, back, core, shoulders, things like that. Think about muscles you're gonna use and I'm not saying go to the gym and work them out, but just think about that. Put a backpack on during lunch and go hiking for a half hour. Whatever it is, do something physical to make you a more physically fit and ready elk hunter. Endurance is another one that's, that's big, so things that are gonna help improve your endurance and then good old cardio. When it comes to elk hunting, you're going to expend cardio. You're gonna use your lungs, so make sure your lungs are ready. We had a, a film guy go with us uh, two years ago to Wyoming, he lives in San Luis Obispo, California, which is elevation, I think, 9 or 10, right at sea level. 
We camped at 9,700 feet, and we went up to almost 11,000 feet on the first day of the hunt. I felt sorry for him, but he did awesome. But make sure your lungs are ready because elk hunting's tough. The other thing about physical conditioning is it pushes your mind. Without even realizing it, you are making your body go outside of its comfort zone. You're pushing yourself physically. Your mind is paying attention to that, and it's realizing, you know what? I can do hard things. I can get outside my comfort zone, and I can recover from that. And that's going to be so important on day six or day seven of an elk hunt when your mind is starting to be the one that wants to give in. Physical conditioning is going to make you mentally stronger and give you perseverance. It's going to be really important so that you can stick with it. And then the third topic, elk hunting knowledge. This is, again, back to that survey, my own personal feelings. Elk hunting knowledge is vital to success. Understanding what the elk are doing in the morning, during the day, at night, what they're doing throughout the year, the habits, the behavior of elk, is so critical to being able to find them and hunt them. And when we get into calling, I'm gonna talk about it, but you actually need to start thinking a little bit like an elk. And when you think like a hunter pursuing an elk, the elk has the advantage. When you start thinking like an elk, don't act like an elk at home. When you start thinking like an elk, when you're hunting and when you're preparing to hunt, it's gonna give you an advantage. I could stand up here and I could tell you in any situation what I would do. If you said, okay, it's September 24th, there's a herd bull, he's got three satellite bulls running around, he's got 16 cows, there's three herds in the drainage, it's nine o'clock in the morning, they're moving up to their bedding area, it's overcast and there are no squirrels chattering and there's no grouse on the trail, what would you do? I can tell you. And in that situation, it might work for you as well. But if I can help you understand why an elk is doing something or why you would want to do a certain thing, you're gonna be able to apply that over a whole spectrum of different situations. And so that's my goal as I talk about elk hunting knowledge, is help you understand what the elk are doing, why they're doing it, so that you can predict and make up what you're gonna do, the strategy you're gonna use, the, the guess that you're gonna use on where the elk are going in every single situation. It's gonna be different, it's gonna change continually, but when you start to understand an elk's mind, you're gonna to start to understand why they're doing something, where they're gonna to go to do it, how long they're gonna be there, where you need to be to intercept them or to set up on them, and that's gonna be super important for success. So there's three quick things. Number one, I'm gonna talk about elk senses. I'm gonna talk about thermals and wind, and then I'm gonna talk about basic elk habits. And hopefully in talking about it, you're gonna see the correlation between all three of those things. So I'm gonna skip hearing and sight and not spend much time there. Elk can hear incredibly well. They can pinpoint sound like exact. I saw a video one time of a guy in a tree stand. A bull bugles up on the ridge like three or 400 yards away. He lets out a bugle from the tree stand and then goes quiet. And about 45 seconds later, the bull walks to the base of the tree he's in and stands at the base of that tree looking around. Incredible ability to pinpoint sound. Sound's not a huge deal as long as you're making natural sounds. The elk will just know you're there. And if you're trying to get in there without the elk knowing you're there, don't make any sounds. But if you're calling, you're making sounds. The elk already knows you're there. You can break branches, you can roll rocks, you can do natural things that an elk would do and you're okay. The second you start dragging your cord or a pack across the bark of a tree or taking a plastic bugle tube and hitting it against a tree, that's unnatural and they're gonna know it. When it comes to sight, elk see 2060 equivalent to humans. They see in dichromatics, so they see two colors. They have two color cones instead of three. They're not colorblind, but they don't see color the same way we do. 
I'm not worried about an elk seeing me. What I'm worried about is an elk picking up on movement. So movement's the key to making sure that we overcome an elk's sense of sight. And the last one, the sense of smell. And this one is the most, most critical, most important. I'm gonna just say this, and, and somebody will probably argue, but you will not beat an elk's nose. Just, you won't beat an elk's nose. And yes, there may be one time out of 100 where a bull is so caught up in the rut that he smells you, the wind hits him in the face, and he kind of does one of those, and he keeps coming anyways because he hears a cow. That might happen. Don't count on it. Always pay attention to the elk's sense of smell, which leads into thermals and wind. And we've talked about it a little bit, and I'm glad that nobody in here raised their hand when I said they, you know, asked if anybody hadn't been messed up by the wind because it happens on a daily basis. We can't control the wind. A cloud comes over in front of the sun and the thermals are switched direction 180 degrees and the whole morning we spent getting close to this elk, we're 100 yards away, the setup's perfect, and then the wind switches and the elk smells a scent over Can't control the wind, right? But we can control how we use the wind and where we set up and how the wind is going to be an effect on our hunt. So, the basics of thermals, I'm sure everyone knows this, but in the morning, thermals are coming down the mountain, right? It's cold, it's cool, the, the ground's cool, that's pulling that air down, cooling it, and as air cools, it drops. So the thermals are coming down. Mid-morning, as the sun comes up, it warms up the hillside, the ground starts getting warm, that starts to warm the air, warm air rises, so the thermals switch directions, they start moving up. In the evenings, the shadows hit the hillside, it starts cooling the ground, the cool ground cools the air, the air starts to drop again. It's called a diurnal wind system, it changes twice a day. And when it changes, it changes from going down, to going up or going up to going down. So 180 degree switch. That is probably the foundation of one of the most important concepts to understand about elk. And I'll share that in just a second. But before I do, there's some things we can do to help mitigate the effects of, of the thermals. Now, if we're following an elk up the mountain first thing in the morning, puffing on our puffer bottle and everything's good, the wind's coming down, we're protected, right? We're fine. But if we're looking at an hour hike to catch up to the elk and we're thinking the sun's coming up behind us and it's gonna start warming the ground, we have to be thinking about what the thermals are doing in an hour. Not just right now, because in an hour, we're still behind the elk following up to their bedding area. And about the time they get there, the thermals switch, we're behind them, they smell us and it's game over, the morning's wasted. I was hunting with Donnie several years ago and we got up on a ridge and we bugled the bull answered down the bottom of the canyon and Donnie took a step to start heading out. I'm like, no, 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 hold on. We walked around probably a mile and a half, two miles, around the top of the base and clear around, got on a parallel ridge, went over the back of it, came around, and then came up on the elk on that side just to get the wind in our favor and to get on the same level as the elk. Think about thermals. They're coming down in the morning. When they switch, they're coming back up. If you're playing the up-down game and getting directly above or directly below the elk, you are in danger of being winded. If you can get on the same level as the elk and move inside hill to them, when the wind does switch, it's taking it... 90 degrees away from the elk because the wind's going down. When it switches, it's gonna take it 90 degrees away going up. If you're below or above the elk, they're gonna smell you when the wind switches. If you're parallel with them and on a side hill at the same elevation, moving across at their level, they're not gonna smell you when the wind switches, typically. If it swirls or something, which a lot of times it does, if it switches in the middle of the day due to cloud cover or a storm coming in, sometimes you'll get some sideways winds. But for the most part, it's an up-down wind. And if you approach from the side, you're gonna minimize the amount of time, or the number of times that you get busted by the wind. Which leads me to this. Everything that an elk does is tied to its senses. Everything. 
every movement that an elk makes, every hour of every day, elk are trying to stay alive. And they have a lot of predators, a lot of things out to get them. Two-legged predators, four-legged predators, weather, all that. They have been spending decades and centuries surviving. And they do that by their senses. And their senses are good. Everything that they do is tied to their sense, their senses, and primarily their sense of smell. So let's think through what, what the thermals are doing. In the morning, they're coming down. So where are you going to find an elk? Usually at lower elevations, right? Meadows. First thing in the morning, they're usually feeding meadows, lower elevations, where the thermals are bringing the scent of any potential danger down to them. Then, when they turn and leave and they head for their bedding areas, the timing is not a coincidence. It is very, very specific. They are moving up the mountain to their bedding areas with the thermals in their face, and they can smell any danger that's up ahead of them. They aren't going to walk into danger because they can smell it. So they're moving up the mountain with the thermals coming in their face. About the time they get to their bedding area up in the mountain, usually on a north face, likely on a bench somewhere, they're going to get there just about the time that the thermals switch. And as they're getting to their bedding area, the thermals now switch and bring up any scent from behind them, any danger that's been trailing them up the mountain, they're going to smell and be alerted to. And they're going to go somewhere else. When they bed there, they're protected from anything all day that's down below them. If you try to approach an elk in the middle of the day from down below, they're going to smell you. But they can't smell from above. So where are they going to bed? Somewhere where they can use one of their other two senses to protect them from above. So there's going to be an open hillside above them where they can sit and watch all day. Or there's going to be the thickest, nastiest blowdown area that a little squirrel is going to sound like an elephant trying to come through. And they're going to hear that. They're going to be protected. That's where they're going to bed. In the evening, as the thermals start to switch, before they switch, they get up, they start milling around, and they head back down the mountain to where they're going to spend the night. Thermals are coming up as they're moving down. They're smelling any danger in front of them. About the time they get there, the thermals switch. Any scent from behind them, any danger, is now being brought down the mountain. If they're in the bottom, scent from both sides of the canyon are coming down. They smell anything in that canyon that might potentially be danger. That simple fact, that simple movement of the elk is so vital to understand. <coughs> because how we approach the elk, how we move in on them, how we set up when we call them, all of that, we need to make sure that we're thinking about the elk senses. Every move we make has to be attached to the elk senses. On the flip side, trying to counter their senses. So with that brief overview of elk knowledge, and with us only having a few actual official minutes left, I want to get into the exciting part, and that's calling. How many of you like to call elk? Hold your hands way high. What's with the rest of you? Are you intimidated by calling? It's difficult, right? It's intimidating to learn to use a call. It's intimidating to know what to say to the elk, how to call them in. And sometimes it's probably easier just to go out and wander around blindly and hope to get lucky or hope to get close to an elk without calls. For me, the absolute thrill of elk hunting, the reason I look forward to elk hunting for 11 and a half months a year and absolutely love it is just the vocal interaction, just calling elk. I would go out, if we couldn't hunt elk, I would go out and spend every day I could in September just calling them. Just the sound they make, the, the interaction with them, being able to fool them into thinking that I'm another elk, that's the thrill for me. The fact that we get to tag and we get to go hunt them, it's like double thrill. So I'm going to talk about calling in a way that hopefully isn't intimidating. I'm an engineer by trade. I spent 10 years working as an engineer. I learned to simplify processes. And 
when it comes to elk calling, I think I've simplified it about as far as I can. And in doing so, I really think that I've found an efficient way that is probably the most efficient way to call in elk because it's simple. If it gets complicated, I get confused and I mess up, so I keep it simple. I only use three sounds to call in an elk. And it, this works early season, mid-season peak rut, after the peak rut, works on satellite bulls, on herd bulls. There's a couple of keys to it, but the whole strategy I used to call an elk is really simple. And again, there's three calls. So for a typical day of elk hunting for us, we get up early in the morning, we start hiking. And we hike ridges. We get on ridges so we can just cover a lot of country. And what we're trying to do is broadcast location bugles down into any drainage we come to. We just want to get on a vantage point, blow a location bugle, and get an answer. That's my goal for the hunt, for the day. That's first and foremost. I'm not looking for sign necessarily. I, I'm paying attention to sign, but I'm using my bugle to find the elk. And so I get on a ridge and I make a location bugle. And a location bugle is just a simple two or three notes. You hold that high note, hold it up there, let it really echo out down into that canyon, and then just taper it off. Anybody can learn to do a location bugle. It's that easy. It's, it's super easy. I'm confident that I could help anybody make a location bugle. Even if you can't use a diaphragm, there are calls that you can use to make a location bugle. So that's a location bugle. It sounds like this. in it there's nothing that makes you think oh well it's a big bull or anything it's just an elk sound you're broadcasting that out there you want that high note hold it there I hold it a little longer than an elk probably would so I want to make sure that every elk that's out in that canyon hears it I want to give them an opportunity to respond to it and I want them to respond if they don't respond if there's a bull 300 yards away from me and I can see him on the hillside and I happen to give a location bugle and he doesn't lift his head and look at me I'm hiking on that's not an elk that I want to hunt unless Maybe it's really big, and I'm hunting with Randy Newberg, and we're going to have to spot and stalk anyway. <laughs> but if I want to call in an elk, I've got to find an elk that's willing to talk. So I'm going to keep hiking until I get an elk to answer. And again, location bugle is just, just simple. A couple notes high, hold it, drop off. Once I get an elk to answer, I move in as close as I can get to that elk. I don't call anymore. I pinpoint where he's at. If he answers me and I'm looking down the hillside, like it's like 600 yards away, there's a big snag on the ridge we need to work down. We pay attention to what the wind's doing. Let's get on the same level as him and move into the towards that snag and get set up over there. I'm visually looking and making a plan of how to approach this elk without making any noise. I don't want him to know we're coming to him. At this point, all I've said is, hey, I'm an elk. Anybody else out there? And he answers back, says, yep, down here, found some nice green grass, cool on this side of the mountain, thanks for checking in. That's all I want him to do. I don't want him to get fired up. I don't want him to come towards me. I don't want him to think I'm coming towards him. I just need to know where he's at. Then I move in, and I get as close as I can. And when I say as close as I can, it's going to change, depending on the, the place you're hunting, the terrain, if it's brushy, if it's open, all of that. But if I can get within 100 to 150 yards of that elk, I am super, super confident in being able to call him in. And when we get set up, again, think about the, the mistakes, the wind. Make sure you set up in a place that the elk's not going to come in and wind you. Make sure that you set up in a place that he's going to feel comfortable coming in, that you're not setting up behind a tree or behind brush. All these things, you're in control right now. Use that time wisely. As you move in there and start setting up, pick the perfect setup. You don't want to call in this bull that just comes tearing down the hill to you and then not have a place to shoot. It's fun and that's exciting, but if your goal is to kill an elk, 
you need a lane to shoot through. So make sure you have the setup, that everything's good. From there, I don't buy into the whole elk speak a language and you need to know what they just said and you need to respond in a way that's gonna communicate directly with them. I don't think elk are that intelligent. I think elk communicate through emotion and especially a bull elk in the month of September. And there's two emotions I've found that if I can trigger in a bull elk, I can get him into our setup. Number one, their desire to breed. If you can convince a bull elk that you're a cow and it's September and he wants to breed, he's probably gonna come into that setup. Typically though, when I'm using cow calls to call bulls in, they're a lot more cautious. They're gonna come in, stop you at 80 yards or 100 yards, they might bugle a lot, but they're thinking, I'm gonna come partway down the mountain, but you need to come partway to me. And they're gonna expect that cow to work up towards them most of the time. If you get a bull that's just either been beat up and his cow's taken or he's just really lovesick, you might get him to come running in. But for the most part, when they come in, they're more cautious, it's a little bit more work to get them in. The other emotion that a bull will respond to during the month of September is the desire to fight. And if you can trigger that in a bull elk, there is nothing in hunting that's more exciting. There is nothing in elk hunting that is more effective because that bull drops his guard, he drops every ounce of senses that he has, and he comes running down the hill, eyes rolled back, slobbering at the mouth, tearing trees out of the ground, looking for that other elk that just challenged him to fight. And the way I do that is simple. So we get set up, I love having a two-caller, a two-hunter setup where we have a caller back behind a shooter out in front, and that caller's job is just simply to get the bull in the, in the shooting lane for the, for the shooter. So as a caller, I get set up, I let out a cow sound. One or two, just simple cow calls. Nothing crazy, nothing hyper-estrous, just a, just a cow call, just a cow mew. Anybody can do that. You can do it with a hoochie mom if you need to. I wouldn't recommend it because it's one to minute. It's, it's a good call, but a diaphragm, if you can make cow calls and bugle on it, it's gonna just be way more versatile and it's hands-free. I've yet to see somebody at full draw with a bow use a hoochie mom to stop an elk. That's a train wreck waiting to happen. So, learn the diaphragm, cow call, simple cow call. I give that cow call. If I'm within 100 or 150 yards of a bull elk in the month of September, and I let out one of these, he's probably gonna respond. We're on public land, heavily hunted, call shy elk, you're still probably gonna get a response from him. It might just be a grunt, it might be a squeal, it might be a full-on bugle. It changes, and it doesn't always happen, but for the most part, I can get a response out of an elk with a couple cow calls. Being close is the key. When he responds, you have to be ready. Because the second he responds, you've got to hammer him with the most aggressive challenge bugle that you can muster. Think about what goes into a challenge bugle. Okay, I always compare it to the, the whole Biff and Marty thing from Back to the Future. You know, if this bull is up there and he bugles, and, and think about the situation. Think about an elk in a psychological way. All of a sudden, this elk starts minding his own business, munching on the grass, and he hears this sweet sounding little cow down the hill, 100 yards away. And he's thinking, wow, it's September. I could really use some company. And he says, hey, you sound really cute. Want to come up here and hang out with me for a couple weeks? Okay, everything's good in his world. He's Mr. Macho. And then all of a sudden, without even realizing it, somebody's in his face screaming at him, saying, uh, don't talk to her, don't look at her. In fact, you need to pack up your stuff and get out of here because if you don't, I'm going to throttle you right now. 
Now, if I'm 400 yards away from somebody across the field and they whistle at my wife, and I say, man, gee, Biff, I sure don't like that you did that. What's going to happen? Nothing, right? I end up and get in his face, and I insult him, his last name, everything I can think of about him, the way he looks, the way he acts, the way he talks, I'm going to start a fight, right? He's not going to turn and run away. It's that fight or flight thing. Elk are the same way. You have to get inside their mind. What is going to trigger that fight in them? He just talked to this cow. He thinks she's by herself. He's out there in the middle of nowhere, minding his own business, and there's this cute little cow there that's looking for friendship. And he says, hey, come hang out with me. And before he finishes it, this bull insults him, insults every elk in that canyon, insults the lineage of elk that that bull elk has ever produced, <laughs> and says, uh-uh. Don't talk to her. In fact, come down here and let's settle this. He's going to flip out of his mind. He's not even going to think straight. He just got insulted. He got embarrassed. He's talking to this cow he thought was alone, and now he's getting insulted. Think like a human would in that situation. Think like your college roommate would have thought in that situation. That's what an elk thinks like. You've got to trigger that. And when you do, he's going to cut loose, and he's going to be standing in front of you in no time. A couple keys to this. The challenge bugle... You have to put that emotion in it. You have to put that insult in your bugle. Okay? You cow call the bull answers, you give him one of these. situation in that setup with the bugle. No matter what bugle you use, that bull is then going to answer you. And he has the opportunity to then challenge you and put the ball in your court. He's saying, you're too close to me. If you really want to hang out here, why don't you come up here and let's settle whose area this is. And he's going to stand his ground, and you're going to bugle back and forth for a half hour, and he's finally going to say, that's what I thought. You're chicken, I'm moving off. And he leaves. How many times does that happen? We bugle with an elk, they hold their ground, or they round up their cows and they run. Okay, call shy elk, public land elk, herd bulls, I don't care what it is. If you get close to them and you trip an emotional trigger in them, they will come in. A couple years ago in Oregon, Donnie and I were hunting over there. We had this bull absolutely screaming his way down the hill at us. And I thought, this is it, it's going to happen. He's going to be a big six point. Out steps this little fuzzy horn spike. I'm like, all right, get out of here, go through the big bulls behind you. I cow called, and that fuzzy horn spike laid his head back and laid out the most aggressive screaming bugle. I wouldn't have believed it if I wouldn't have saw it. Eyes rolled back in his head, frothing at the mouth, 
still had fuzzy on his on his antlers. It's just a natural reaction they have. If you can trip that natural emotion, they're going to lose control and come in. And that's what we want. Because as a hunter, then the biggest challenge we have is stopping them when they get to our shooting lane. Because they're on a beeline looking for that collar. So again, keep it simple. You only have to learn three calls. So a simple cow call, a simple location bugle, a simple challenge bugle. And that is all you need to call in elk. Don't worry about all the other auxiliary sounds, chuckles, growls, all of that. They don't matter for calling an elk. They can add realism. A lot of times I get so caught up in the moment, I'm making every sound I can think of that sounds like an elk, but they're responding to that challenge. Okay, so I'm gonna set up a couple quick things I just wanna mention before we wrap it up here. The key is getting close. If you do any of this tactic from three or 400 yards away, it's not gonna be nearly as effective. You'll get some to come in, but if you wanna have the highest rate of efficiency, you've got to get close. And the closer you can get, the better. If you can get inside 60 yards, well, at that point, Probably don't even need to call them in to shoot them at that point, but get as close as you can. Sometimes that's 200 yards and that's all the closer we can get. Sometimes I have a caller behind and he's 60 yards behind and I can only get 200 yards from the elk and now the caller's 260 yards from the elk. Sometimes it's not enough to get the elk to commit to come in. So there's things we do. Sometimes the shooter will call from out front, pressure the bull, get the bull committed and then go quiet and let the caller bring the bull the rest of the way into the setup. But getting close is key. When you set up, I like, I, I like to remember the word arc. An arc is twofold in this. First off, it stands for always remember concealment. So think about the three senses the elk have. Make sure you're setting up so that they're not going to see you, that they're not going to hear you, and that they're not going to smell you. And then the other thing it stands for is going back to the wind. If we're coming in from the same level as the elk, there's a line from us to the elk, an imaginary straight line across the hill. The thermals in the morning are going to be coming down perpendicular to that. In the afternoon, they're going to be going up perpendicular to that line. We want to be on that perpendicular line because when an elk comes in, if the thermals are going down, he's probably going to circle downwind and come in below the collar to make sure there's no danger. If the thermals are going up, he's probably going to circle uphill and get above the, above the collar to see if there's any danger. So as a shooter out in front, we need to set up along an imaginary arc that's on the uphill or the downhill side, depending on which way the wind's going, of that straight line that we're, that we, the imaginary straight line to the elk. We want to draw an imaginary arc and set up along that. That way when the bull comes in and he does circle either down below or up above, he's not going to win the shooter who's silent out in front before we get a shot. And then the last one, be aggressive. Don't be timid. Be confident in your abilities to call. Be confident in the setup that you have and call that elk in. Be aggressive. Put emotion into your calls. Give him a reason to come in. I'm going to skip those just because they're not nearly as exciting to talk about. So I want to wrap up just with a, a word of, of encouragement and inspiration for successful elk hunting. There's not a single person in this room that is not capable of achieving 100% success. Not a single person. It is not a, a talent thing. It's not a uh, location thing. You can do that. You can be successful. If you're willing to work hard, if you're willing to, to learn from the mistakes you make, and you'll make mistakes every day. Learn from them, apply fixes to the things that go wrong. We're so blessed to live in an area where we can go and buy a tag over the counter, where we can go out on public land, and we can hunt elk every single season. You don't have to settle for average. You don't have to look at the average and say, yeah, in this unit, 17% of the people are successful each year, so if I kill an elk every four or five years, I'm ahead of, of average. That's not the mindset. Mindset you need to have and the mindset that I hope to, to encourage you 
is you can be successful every time you hunt elk. There's nothing keeping you from it. None of those excuses, none of those reasons are going to keep you from being successful if you want it. And there will be times, yes, when things happen out of our control that we just can't piece it together. But for the most part, you can blow the averages out of the water. The only place where success comes before work is in the dictionary. I love that quote, but I added the last part, and in packing elk. Because work truly comes after success there. So, real quickly, a little uh, shameless plug here for the University of Elk Hunting. How many members of the University of Elk Hunting online course are here? Awesome. What do you guys think about it? Love it. Love it? Good. So I created a, it's a made, it's like a college level course. There's about 50-some chapters in it. It's 120,000 words, 70 videos. It's the most comprehensive compilation of elk hunting information with one goal, and that is to increase your success. And if anybody's interested in signing up for that, it's a year membership. Uh, it's $99. You can sign up and use the code SEMINAR10. It'll save you 10 bucks. And anyone who signs up here from BHA, if you just put BHA in the notes, we donate $20 to BHA for every person who signs up. So with that, if you've been to a seminar I've done before, you know I love to give away gear. I have companies that, that uh, are more than generous with gear to give away, and I like to reward people who ask questions. So we've got, let's say, 15 minutes, and I'll stay here until they come and grab the cane and yank me off of here and tell us we have to get out. But say 15 minutes, and we'll go through. If you have questions, raise your hand. I'll call on you. I'll do my best to answer it, and then we'll get through as many as we can. Right here. Uh, no staircase to your challenge vehicle. So talking about staircase, what he means is just that octave change is doo -doo 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 as you're going up. So on the challenge bugle, I jump right into that high note. I just scream. I don't even build up to it. It's just straight. And you can. There's nothing wrong with hitting a couple notes going up to it. I think the key part of it is just to just want to put that emotion in it and make sure you put that in the call and hit that high note. That high shrill note is really what issues that challenge. So if you hit if you do hit a staircase. still hit that staircase and challenge them. I think I just get so emotional about the call, I just jump right into it and hit that high note. So the important part is hitting that high note, keeping it short, and then putting that emotion in it. So maybe you've seen the subalpine covers on the Bully Bull extreme tubes. These are like hot commodity. There are only a handful of them made, and uh, we've got one here for you. For sure. So if you absolutely can't use a diaphragm, and part of the, the concept behind these with the plate on the back of them or the dome is to be able to position them in different places in your mouth, and that basically becomes a roof of your mouth. So people with gag reflex used to be able to get the diaphragm so far back in your mouth that a lot of people would gag on it. These help, but if I know people that can't even put a toothbrush in their mouth without gagging, and if that's the case, you can't use a diaphragm. Yeah, you just can't. You can't. And so there are, uh, there's, there's calls that they have either an external read or that would use a similar concept to the diaphragm just on an external mouthpiece that you would blow on. Uh, something like that is great. You don't get as much versatility out of them. They might not be as three-dimensional in the sound, but you can still make a challenge bugle. You can still make a location bugle with them. For cow calls, just an open read type cow call that you can just make a simple mew with works just fine. Again, the benefit to a diaphragm is it's hands-free. It's a lot more versatile. You can make every sound with one. 
So, you know, if you're a bow hunter and you're trying to, to call with an open reed bugle tube, you're not going to be able to do that with a, you know, at full draw. So, great question. What size shirt are you? Large tall. Large tall. So is that extra large or large? Large. Okay. <laughs> All right, I've got a large t-shirt here. It's one of these uh, Elf 101 Elf Word t-shirts. All right, back over here, front and green here. Hey, um, do you go out with a bunch of different diaphragms or do you just have one that you stick with and that's your tried and true? Great question. So the question was, do I have multiple diaphragms that I use when I'm hunting or do I just go out with one? I just go with one. And the reason why is, if I'm making a cow call and I have to challenge that bull really quickly, I don't want to pull out a diaphragm, put it away, grab another one, put it in, and, and blow on it. So I find a diaphragm that is versatile, that I can make any cow call with, that I can make any bugle with. The problem with that is they're going to be a lighter latex to be able to cow call and bugle with. So if you get into a screening match with the bull, you're going to stretch that latex. It's a lighter latex, so it's going to blow out a little faster, but it's a lot more versatile, and so that's what I use there. Which one do you recommend? Uh, it's a, I mean, there's so many diaphragms, it's, it's important to find one that fits you. To find one that fits your palate, that is the right latex stretch, the right, the right latex thickness, all of that. For, for like a middle, middle of the road, medium type use, um, like I use either the Mistress or the All-Star or the Pretender, one of those three. They're all a medium latex, medium stretch, they're really versatile. Uh, the Mistress is pink, it's the lightest of the latex in those. Oh, there it is. So it's got a really light latex, which gives you just. Really soft, sweet cow sound, but then you can also scream on it. Problem is, if you blow too hard, it'll blow out on the top end. So the All Stars is the neon green one, and it'll probably be the best middle of the road. Then the Contender is a little bit stiffer latex. It'll last a lot longer, but a little bit more to control that. So, what size t shirt? XL. So, all right, there you go. All right, I see somebody in the back here, so I'm not accusing of picking on people in the front. Back here in the green shirt. All right, so earlier you were talking about, obviously, when you get into a screaming match with a bull, and he puts the ball in your court, at that point, what do you do? When, so you cow call, he answers, and then you challenge him? Yeah. I mean, then what do you do next? Okay, so, so what I was talking about there is if I was to bugle first and have him respond to that, he's put the ball in my court. So I, I try not to ever bugle first because if I do, if I'm set up and I let out a bugle first, when that bull bugles back at me, he might challenge me. And he's going to hold his ground and stand there and say, okay, you're too close to me. You come up here. Let's settle this. And he waits for me to move up there. So he's put the ball in my court. I try to always cow call first. When he responds, then I challenge him and put the ball in his court. If I was to, to bugle first and he answered, maybe he's quiet and I get up there and I cow call a couple times and nothing happens, I get frustrated and I bugle and he hammers right back there, I'm going to immediately flip it around and try to get him to respond again based on cow calls. And then as soon as he responds, then I cut him off and challenge him. It's so important. And if I do bugle first and he comes right back and he's aggressive, I might come right back over the top of him. It happened this year. I don't know if anybody was, was in the room listening to us podcast this morning with Ty and Josh at Shooting the Bull, um, but we were talking about a hunt last year with Tyler Crockett, and on that one, the bull was coming in, I bugled thinking he was still at the mountain, he ended up being really close, and he hammered right back, and I cut him right back, he cut me off right back, 
I cut him off again. There were five bugles in a matter of probably 20 seconds there. And so I just want to make sure I get in the last word, that I issue that challenge, and that I cut him off. So, great question. Got a half dozen rampage arrows for you from Black Eagle. You bet. All right. Over here in the far back. Yep. My favorite state to hunt in? The state that I have a tag in. <laughs> I live in Idaho. I was born here, raised here, live here. Uh, Idaho's home. So it's fun to hunt close to home. I can hunt with my children you know, after school. Uh, Idaho has its challenges, for sure. But I think opportunity-wise, Idaho's great. We have a, a lot of opportunity in a lot of different places. We still have a great population of elk. We have uh, a great age class of elk overall. Uh, we have a lot of other hunters, but I've hunted uh, every western state with the exception of Nevada and Washington, and favorite would probably be Arizona is unfair because you can only get a tag there about once every 10 years. Uh, Wyoming, as a non-resident, you have to draw, but you can draw the general tag with one or two points. So I would say overall for quality hunting and opportunity, Wyoming's a good, a good second to Idaho for me. Great question. What size shirt are you? Small? We can do that. Got a small for you right here. Can we throw it? Okay. If I hurt anybody, it's not my fault. Oh, I almost did. All right. Back over here in the black hat. Yep. Uh, what's your go-to move when you get that screaming bull elk come in? What do you like to go to to get him to stop in your line of fire? In your line Great of fire? question. So yeah, when that bull comes in and he's fired up and turned trees out of the ground trying to get to the collar, how do I actually stop him in a shooting lane? It can be tough. So literally, when I hunted with Randy in New Mexico, we had one come through a shooting lane. Randy tried stopping it. He didn't have a diaphragm in, so he's whistling at it. He's, I mean, offering it Dairy Queen gift cards. He's doing everything he can. <laughs> And it didn't stop until it got all the way through the shooting lane. So I want to make sure when I'm ready to stop that elk that I give him something crisp that he's going to hear, that's going to catch his attention, that's going to snap him out of it. And I just use a cow call. Um, the problem with cow calls is sometimes he's coming in to fight and he hears a cow call. It's not unnatural to him. He thinks there's a cow there. He already answered it. That's why he's coming in is to get that cow. And so he might just keep going right through that shooting lane past the cow call looking for the bull. I, just, I definitely put some emotion in that cow call, so if I'm at full draw and I'm ready, I give him just a good, just a good chirpy, loud, so he hears it and knows right where it's at and he'll stop and look at it at least. Um, Steve Chappell, a good friend of mine who's an outfitter in Arizona, he just makes a weird sound with his mouth, says, meh, and that's, it works. I mean, the elk stop, they never bolt the run. Every time he's done it, the elk stops and looks at him and they get a shot. So. Tyler last year again on that hunt, the second elk that came in, great big six point came through the shooting lane, he's a full draw and didn't have a diaphragm in his mouth. So it's important as a shooter, even though you're not calling, make sure you have a diaphragm in your mouth so you can stop that elk. He didn't, and he said, I don't know if I just thought I was mute because I didn't have a diaphragm in my mouth, but I didn't make a sound to stop the elk, and he shot it as it was moving and hit it a little far back. There were some other technical failures in his release that went on as well, but make a sound. You know, get that elk to stop, and if you don't, 35 yards if that elk's moving just at a normal walking pace with a 300 foot a second bow, your arrow's going from right behind the shoulders to right in the flank. And three feet is nothing for an elk to cover in the time it takes for that arrow to get there. So if at all possible, make sure you stop that elk. So great question. Let's see what we've got here in the bag. 
about a University of Elk Hunting DVD for you? Okay, there's sharp corners on this. All right. Next question. Right back here. Yep. Okay, so I've been pretty successful with the elk. My question is, my dad, who got me into bow hunting when I was a young boy, he's getting old, he's out of shape, he can't move, he lives out of state, so he comes out every other year. Putting him up in the stands, which he's familiar with, white tail stand hunting, he's comfortable with that. He's kind of with his health. How can I set that up to make sure that he's successful? So he can get him up? To create either call for him, you know, how do you go? Totally. So the question is, uh, for his dad, who's not able to get around as well anymore, still likes to hunt elk, if you're going to hunt in a tree stand or from a blind or something, what's, what's a good strategy there? So there's a couple ways to look at it. Early season, elk have to have water. It's warm out. So if you're set up on a good water hole that you've scouted and there's a lot of activity on it, that's one way to just set up like you would hunt a whitetail just on a, a good game trail coming to food or water. Uh, if you have a water hole there, that's great. As the rut progresses, the bulls are going to be wallowing. So if you find an active wallow, taking a tree stand or a blind and setting up there can be really effective. The problem with that in most of the units in Idaho, especially north of Boise, there's water everywhere. So focusing on a water hole or even a wallow can be pretty difficult. So if you have a place that you scouted that you know there are elk, that they're coming in, uh, Randy, one of the things Randy taught me was find private land that's loaded with elk and then use Onyx maps to skirt that private land. And I found some really sweet spots that nobody else goes to because they think it's all private there. And I'm not going to hike all the way around, but then you find access and come in and there's a section of public land that butts up to it. And just hunting that little section as the elk move off the private in the morning, sometimes they'll come up and just bed 100 yards onto the public. And if you're set up there ready to intercept them, that can be great. So water is really important. Um, it's hard on a game trail because by about the first Maybe the second week of September, the elk aren't quite as patternable. Before that, they're in a pretty good feeding pattern. Once the bulls start rutting, everything's kind of out the window. Um, so finding a place, doing scouting is going to be the most important part. Find the elk in the summer. Look for the cows. If you find the cows in the summer, they're going to stay there into that first part of the rut. The bulls are going to come in there, and that's where you want to focus. So, great question. Got a hat here from Crossover Stabilizers. All right. Back in the back there. Nope, you in the blue shirt. Yep. So how about with uh, bachelor groups of bulls, even through the season, I've got a couple spots of just 13, 14 bulls all the time. There's no cows in the area. One second. What was the coordinates of that? <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. 13 or 14 bulls, middle of the season? Yeah, no cows. Wow. That's like a dream. Um, so if they're tolerating each other, it makes it a little bit more difficult to call them in because that's what works with calling, is irritating them and not, them want, not wanting another bull around. So if they're with 10 or 12 other bulls, it can be hard to call them in. So um, at that point, at some point, they're gonna have to go looking for cows. They're just, they're gonna do it. Is that your experience? They stay bacheloured up all during the rut. It's like a sanctuary. <laughs> like the whole month of September sanctuary? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I've never found anything like that. I have never heard of anything like you. So have you hunt, I mean, is there, a rifle season that extends into there? Draw. It's draw. And do they rut during the rifle season or that period in between? The early part of it. Okay, so they're just late rut in there. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. I love hunting bulls before they get herded up, but not when they're together. Typically, the bulls will go from their bachelor group into a staging area and they'll break away from each other and they'll just go completely solitary for 
sometimes eight or ten days before they start roaming and looking for cows, that's my favorite time to hunt them because those bulls haven't got cows, they aren't focused on breeding, they're, they don't have a whole bunch of eyes and ears around that we have to beat. And if I can get in there and get close, that bull's irritable. That's why he's by himself. He doesn't want company. So if I can get in there and challenge him, it's a pretty high success rate to call him that bull in. And they're usually the more mature bulls. If you get 10 or 12 of them hanging out together into the third or fourth week of September, that's like August hunting. That's spot and stock, hunting over water type of a thing. You know, you might try calling, but are they mature bulls? Well, not most of them. Now, occasionally, there'll be one there. Yeah, so I, I would imagine at some point during September, the mature bulls are going to be looking for the cows, and that's probably where I'd focus more, is instead of on that bachelor group of bulls, find where the cows are, and that's where the bigger bulls are going to go. It's, it's good country for kids. I try to get my kid on them. So Absolutely. And something like that might be great to you know just pattern them and set up a blind or just set up and watch them and spot and stock type of a thing. The other thing for young bulls that, that sometimes works is just some blind calling, you know, setting up and not getting aggressive, not trying to get them to fight, just some cow calling, a couple bugles to get them to come in and check out what the herd's doing. So, great question. Got a elk hunting DVD from Born and Raised, Out, Born and Raised Outdoors here for you. I'm gonna just kind of toss this back so I don't... It's a ways. Huh? Yeah, it's a ways. Okay. So if you can toss that back, that'd be great. All right, right here. Yeah, um, I uh, got a draw from a limited entry of uh, mini eighteen. I get up there, and the only calls I'm hearing are location bugles. They're all from other hunters. So do I have any other options, or do I just got to change my strategy and go deep toward the camp or what? Yeah, that's your option. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, that's it. No, I, I don't like hunting around other people just because then things are out of my control. If I get an elk bugle and I move in, everything's perfect, that other hunter might move in from the wrong side of the wind and the elk smells them. Or it might turn into a competition or we're trying to be the first one to get to the elk and we end up making mistakes because we're worried about that other hunter. So I, I would rather go to a place where there's six elk and no other hunters than 600 elk and 10 other hunters. You know, just I want to be someplace where somebody else isn't going to dictate my success. And in an area like that where, you know, unit 18, you've got basically two or three access points to the whole unit, and all of the access points are downhill from there, you know, you're, you're kind of locked in, and so are all of the other hunters, however, you know, 75 tags or whatever, all those hunters are accessing from the same place, and for the first mile or mile and a half, you're going to hear other bugles from hunters. So your, your only choice is find an alternate route in, wade through the rattlesnakes coming in from the riverside, or go deeper than they do. And... You know, it's, it's just a matter of finding that one pocket that's overlooked that elk don't like pressure either. And if all you're hearing is location bugles from other hunters, the elk are somewhere. The same number of elk are in that unit. They just went somewhere else. And if you can find where that is, it's usually going to involve physical conditioning and hiking. So, great question. What's that shirt? Large. Large? Perfect. See that. All right. We'll do a couple more questions here, and then we'll uh, wrap it up. Right back here. Yep. Do you find it, do you have to change up your tactics if you're hunting somewhere with a lot of wolves? If you aren't finding elk talking too much because it's a lot of wolf pressure and are you changing the way you're calling Great question. So the question revolved around wolves, and if I'm hunting an area that has a lot of wolves, I have to change my tactics or you know how that affects the calling. Fortunately, here in Idaho, we don't have wolves, so. <laughs> I wish, right? We do have wolves, and they do affect elk hunting. Um, I actually just shot a wolf three weeks ago, and it took eight days of hunting, and Tyler Crockett and I devoted those eight days 
I will tell you right now, they're the hardest animal I've ever hunted, and I rifle hunted them. And I've only shot maybe two or three animals in my life with a rifle, and that was the hardest hunt I've been on hands down. They're a smart animal, they move continually, they are the apex predator, and the elk are learning that. And beyond the fact, we found four dead bulls within a half mile uh, area that they'd killed. They're up in the high snow, they're targeting the bulls right now, which is why we decided to go and do something about it, because they're the herd of elk we hunt. In the season, the elk move way more now than they used to. They're continually just moving. And if a wolf comes into an area, the elk are gonna move out of that area. And they know that if they bugle, they're a dinner bell. So what I've found is elk are not gonna be nearly as vocal when they're actively, actively being hunted by wolves. If there are wolves in the area, the elk are just gonna climb down. They might bugle a little bit, but if you can get in close, they're gonna be more likely to, bu to bugle. So getting in close is gonna be key. And then the other thing is you've gotta be mobile. If you're in an area where, they're, where you're hearing wolves, I would just pack up and go two or three miles away into another drainage and get away from them. Donnie and I were hunting several years ago and we'd scouted this area, trail cameras all over. We had tons of elk in there. Opening morning went in. We physically saw six bulls on the hillside within a mile of us. And I just, I mean, we're high-fiving. We're gonna tag out this morning, everything's good. I let out a bugle and none of those bulls even lifted their head. Like literally head down feeding, one of them was 300 yards away. Didn't even lift their head. And so we spent the whole day trying to figure it out, got up on the ridge, saw wolf tracks. So we left the area, went about 10 miles down the drainage. Elk were screaming down there. We hunted there for, I don't know, two or three days. And when we came back up to that spot we had started in, the elk were screaming in there, the, the wolves had moved on, the elk had got back to normal activity. So I think it's just having somebody mention at the beginning, not having a plan B was the reason for failure. You gotta have plan B and C and D and E and be willing and, and able to be mobile and just go from spot to spot. And then again, recognizing they're not gonna be as vocal, you probably have to get closer just to get a response out of them initially. You're gonna have to get in close to get them to commit to call. And so, great question. We've got a tight spot quiver here for you. I'm not gonna throw that either. We'll sit that right here and you can grab that. All right, right here in the red shirt. Great question. So I have not hunted the eastern U.S. And the reason primarily is just opportunity. Um, I think there's five states now that offer tags for non-residents. And you have Kentucky and Pennsylvania. I don't know if Tennessee does. Uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin are getting elk. There's a handful of states that are, that are through the efforts of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, really starting to come on board with, with getting elk where they primarily used to be. Um, with that being said, for a non-resident, I think there's less than a handful of tags available, and so I've not uh, really even looked into it much. But from what I understand back there, those herds are managed so tightly and strictly that the, de the demographics are great, the bull-to-cow ratios are great, the hunting is great, the calling's great. Um, from what I've heard, they just don't get hunted a lot, pressured a lot, and the, the calling's actually easier back there. So, great question. I've got a Sitka hat for you here. Whoops, sorry about that. Let's get one from all the way in the back there. So if you get a bull that stops off midday, do you get in position and hang up and wait for in the evening when they're gonna start getting out of their bed, or do you try and still pressure them and get them to come out of their bed and charge? Man, I would have paid somebody to ask that exact question. <coughs> Great question. So midday, how many times have you heard an elk bugle during the middle of the day? 
Not very many people raised their hands. Is that because you're back at camp during the middle of the day? I think one of the biggest mistakes we make as hunters, especially during September, is going back to camp during the middle of the day. So think about what the elk are doing. We talked about their habits during the day. They're moving up the mountain, going to their bedding area. They're on the move. So if we're hunting them, we're trying to catch up to elk. This bull was with the cows. The cows are going to the bedding area. We're trying to get him committed to turn around and come back into us. While his cows continue on and think, you know, go down there and settle your guy thing, do whatever you do, we're going to the bedding area. They move up the mountain, so that bull is going to be less likely to turn around and come back into your setup in the morning as he's moving up the mountain. Another bull might come and steal his cows. Cows might get out of range, whatever it is, it's tough to do. Once they get to their bedding area and settle down, they're in that area because it's safe. And they don't want any other intruders in there. They don't want company. And so for me, if I hear a bull bugle in the middle of the day, it's game on. In fact, I would say 40% of the elk I've killed in the last 30 years have been in the middle of the day. And I would say between 10 o'clock, maybe 11 o'clock, and 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. A couple of reasons why. First off, they're no longer moving. So if you can get in and set up and get close to that bull in his bedding area, you don't have to worry about him moving off. His cows aren't going anywhere. He's not worried about them moving off. So for him to come in, it's a lot more likely that he's going to do that. Second thing is you've now pressured him in his area. You got in there. You're challenging him in his bedroom, and he's probably going to come out of that to stop you. So I love hunting midday when everybody else gets to that two or three mile mark and turns around and comes back down the mountain and goes back to camp and takes a nap. I might take a nap, but then I'm going to get up and I'm going to keep walking ridges and covering country. We'll hike all day long, throwing out location bugles. And they aren't as vocal during the middle of the day. You won't hear as much bugling, but if you can get a bull to bugle from his bed during the middle of the day, the chances of calling that specific and particular bull in is probably higher than any other bull I can think of. So if I hear a bull bugle in the middle of the day, I'm going straight to him right then and trying to call him in. And same situation, I get in close, I give the cow call, and uh, cut him off with challenge bugle. So I've got another subalpine bully bull in stream tube for you. Another question in the back there. So, great question. If you're hunting solo, that adds a whole other level of challenges. Because that bull gets to about 70 or 80 yards and hangs up every time, right? So it's hard to hunt by yourself if you're trying to call. And think about that two-person setup, what the difference is. You're able to put a collar back behind, and that collar, the sound's coming from back here. The bull has to come through that shooter's shooting lane, and he doesn't hang up. Why does he hang up? Because he usually gets to a point where he can hear the sound, he can see the location the sound's coming from, but he doesn't see an elk. So if he gets to a point and he's 60 yards away and he hears a bugle coming from the base of a ponderosa pine tree, he's going to stop and look and say, I'm not going any closer until I see an elk. So if we're hunting by ourselves, if we're hunting with a partner and there's a collar back behind, that collar can get over the rise and make that bull come all the way in before he can stop and see, and the shooter just has to set up in a place that the bull's going to come through. If you're hunting by yourself, you just have to become the shooter and the collar. And you have to basically bring that bull into your shooting lane, which can be hard to do. So setups are, are super critical. You've got to pick a spot where that bull has to actually come into the setup before he's going to be able to see the area he wants to see. Second thing I like to do, I just call it the ventriloquist. Just make your sounds sound like they're coming from behind you. So anytime that bull's within 100 yards of me, I'm throwing my cow calls as far behind me as I can. So instead of facing him where he can pinpoint it, I'm turning to the side, maybe cupping it. He can hear it, but he's like, 
Where was that exactly? I know it was back there somewhere. I don't want her to be able to pinpoint it. When I bugle, I'll do the same thing. I don't want to turn and bugle straight behind me, because if I do that, he's got that line. He at least knows the line. He's going to come walk in that line, and then I'm stuck with a frontal shot. So I'm going to turn it off to the side and back behind me, hoping in. Usually it works. When they come in, here he comes 20 or 30 yards out there, and he's looking straight out where I just pointed that bugle. So I just more really want to become a ventriloquist, make him think the sound's coming from somewhere else. The other thing that might work is if he's 120 yards out there, you know right where he is, let up some cow calls here, give him the challenge bugle and the answers, and then run ahead 20 or 30 yards and find a good setup there. Just have to be careful when you're doing that because now you're moving and he's looking for movement. So if it's in an area that allows you to do that, that moving ahead after a call can be really productive as well. Got a hat here for you. I'm gonna go ahead and zip it back. And it didn't make it quite to the right place, but right here in green shirt. Um, is it game over for you when they bark at you, or what are your tactics? Great question. So barking, elk bark when they sense danger. And there's a difference between a cow bark and a bull bark. So a cow bark is more the deep, sounds like a dog bark, whereas a bull bark is the high, shrill-pitched bark. So a cow bark sounds like this. is that high shrill pitch part. And it's important to understand the difference between the two because they mean two different things. So a cow, when she barks, she's alerting the whole herd, danger, evacuate. She smells something, she hears something, she sees something that she perceives as danger. When a cow barks, every animal in the drainage knows there's an elk up there and she thinks there's danger. So they're on alert. If they don't move out, they're at least on alert. When a bull barks, he'll bark out of frustration. So if you have a bull coming in, he gets to that point where he's 60 yards away, he steps up on a point, he looks right down at the tree you're set up behind, and you let out a bugle, and he's looking at it going, I hear it, but I don't see it. He's going to bark, and he's going to say, I'm frustrated, I'm, I'm a little cautious here, what's going on? I want to see something. And he's trying to get you to move and so he can see you and feel comfortable coming in. So he's not necessarily saying there's danger here, he's just saying, I, I don't understand what's going on. So if a bull barks at me, I'll bark right back at him. And to make sure that he knows that it's not danger, just in case I can't sound exactly like a bull and he thinks, did a cow just bark at me? Is there danger? I'm out of here. I bark like a bull, and then I immediately follow it up with chuckles. And you'll hear that a lot from bulls. When they come in, they'll get to that point, they'll bark, and then they'll chuckle real fast. And I'll just, if a bull barks at me, I'll immediately bark back and chuckle. And basically, I'm just saying, hey, I can't see you either. You know, come a little closer. And a lot of times, that's enough to settle them down and, and get them coming in. So if I bark back, it'll sound like this. Just let them know, hey, I'm a bull too. I'm frustrated. I can't see you. Come down a little closer. So again, it's important to remember the difference between those two sounds because the bull barks at you and you give him a He's going to think, okay, there's a cow down there. She thinks there's danger. I'm out of here. So, recognizing that's important. Got an Uncommon Ground DVD from Born and Race Outdoors for you. All right, let's do two more here, and then we'll wrap it up right here in the red shirt. You've been to my seminars before, haven't you? Every time... Somebody asks a decoy question, they get rewarded with a decoy. 
just so happens I have a decoy. <laughs> so the question is on decoys, how effective can they be? Again, elk are a visual animal. If they get to that point where they're 80 yards away and they can see where the call's coming from, but they don't see an elk, they're usually gonna hang up. So I use a decoy, and I say I use it as a last resort, but that means if I need to use a decoy, I'll use them, because I've had 50-50 results with them. I've pulled out decoys before, the bull sees it, and he turns and runs away for no perceived reason. The very next setup in the same area, I pull it out, and the bull sees it and comes running. So I don't like to just pull them out as soon as the bull shows up on the scene, but if he's up there and I've tried everything I can, I've raked a tree, I've challenged him over and over and over, and he's starting to lose interest, I'll use something, and this is a heads-up decoy. It's just a small, the head, it's got a little handle on it, really light and easy to pack, and so I can just grab it, I'll hold it out from behind the tree, I'll give a couple of cow calls, and it's 50-50 at that point. And sometimes he'll see that and be like, oh, yep, there's elk there, I'm good, come walking right in. Other times he'll see it and start skirting around, or he'll just turn and leave, because for whatever reason. So, great question, I do use them, uh, but again, I use them after I've tried the, the things that I find normally work, so. I'm not going to throw that if you want to stand that back. All right, one more question. And let's make it for a Sitka subalpine bugle tube. And nobody's eager. They're like, just. <laughs> right, he stood up. <laughs> so, when you're doing the challenge bugle, are, is it more tongue pressure on the diaphragm, or is it more lung pressure behind it to get that high? Great question. So when it comes to calling and using diaphragms, I could probably spend an hour just talking about how to use a diaphragm appropriately. Um, there's two, two pressures you mentioned. There's a tongue pressure, air pressure. Both of those pressures are important to learn to control. And understanding the mechanics of each of the sounds. So a cow call starts more a high note and drops off. So that's more of a, of a tongue pressure. You're controlling the pitch with your tongue. And that's what you want to remember. You control the pitch with your tongue. So I can bugle with very little air pressure and just controlling the tongue pressure and make a quiet bugle with, with pretty much full control. So that's just keeping constant air pressure and just using my tongue pressure. But when I bugle, I want to start off with that tongue pressure, light air pressure, light tongue pressure, increase the tongue pressure to the high note. When I get to the high note, then I hit it with some air pressure to hold that high note. So when I'm bugling the challenge bugle, which again sounds like this. I'm basically going straight into that with high tongue pressure and high air pressure. And then I'm dropping both of them off about the same time, about the time that I go, put that aggression into it. So. Great question, and again, there's a ton to be said about learning to use. A lot of times people will hear an elk bugle, they'll pick up a diaphragm for the first time, they'll put it in, and they'll try to sound like the elk immediately. That's probably the worst thing we can do because it, it, it forms all sorts of bad habits. It gets us using air pressure more to change the pitch, and so we don't have the control, we can't hold the high note steady, but if we learn the mechanics and go through kind of a practice routine, or learning tongue pressure and air pressure and then putting the two together to make the sound, it makes a huge difference in, in the final results of the calling. So again, I won't throw this back, but if you wanna come up and grab that, folks are better, it's almost five o'clock. We can stay here and talk elk hunting all day, at least until they turn the heat up a little bit higher.
forget to go to the storytelling tonight. There are some awesome storytellers lined up. Tyler Crockett, guy that I share an office with, is going to be there. If for nothing else, make fun of him and, and book some fun there. Thanks again for coming.
and, and I still can't keep up with him. He's on the run. Okay, again, I'll, I'll correct the story. Okay. I am on the run. When I hear a bugle, I go after it. Run. When Randy yes. hears a bugle, he looks around and says, there's three grouse down, down there. <laughs> those three, by the time he makes it up to where I'm waiting for him bugling, he sees another one and chases it. That's because Corey was not very committed to killing an elk. We parked the truck, and there's a, there is a covey of grouse at the trailhead, right? Weren't, were there not a covey of grouse? There right are three. The Does that make a covey? Yes. Okay. Yes. More than one is a covey. And we shoot two grouse, and the camera guy's like, I gotta get this. And I'm like... What do you mean? You gotta get. You, if you're on my crew, you you know when the word grouse happens, it's shut it down and get the camera going. And then Corey, in his normal magic, calls in this really nice bull. About half hour later, yeah. And I'm I see these antlers, and he's not shooting. I'm like, we're only like half a mile from the truck. Start shooting, man. No, he's down there talking to him. Well, I don't know what you guys were saying. And then I sneak down there. I'm like, what the hell, man? I, 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 I'm, we, we already got two grouse and we could shoot a six-point bull in the first hour of the hunt. He's like, yeah. And that's it. He's like, you want them? I'm like, yeah. So I went over there and he scared him off. I didn't want the hunt in that soon. All right. First night, you can't shoot an elk on the first night. Yeah, and then if you go to New Mexico and hunt with Corey, and like a 12-mile day is a pretty easy go of it for him, uh, and he thinks you're finally getting in good enough shape to catch up to him once in a while, he puts about a 25-pound rock in your pack and doesn't tell you. 20 pounds at most. Okay. And uh, so... I, I, I did have to throw three blizzard containers away to make room for the rock. <laughs> did you find the melted billy bar wrapper? No. Oh. So, and then the other thing, Corey, if you followed him recently on Instagram, you realize he's got a problem with hunting for shed elk antlers. And I have a different theory. I hang them in trees. And how many? I didn't have that problem. I know you did. We didn't find any to hang in trees or pack out. We did too. Well, I didn't. Yes, we did. Your camera guy. In New Mexico. Guy. What? In New Mexico, we did. Right. No, that's what I mean. In New Mexico. Ben, I, I had to bring the one home for Ben. We brought the one home for Marcus, and the rest we put in the trees. So if anybody is in the Gila and you see elk antlers hanging in trees, you don't need our GPS coordinates from that hunt. <laughs> You'll find elk antlers. Tell you what, that hunt was bad enough. I'll give you the GPS coordinates. Yeah. <laughs> started, we're like, hmm, should we tell anyone where we're at? And by the hunt was over, Corey's like, let's tell everybody where we're at. We're in Unit 6. Every time we turn the mic on, Corey's like, we're here in Unit 16E in New Mexico. If you want to waste your time and bust your butt, this is the place to go. I wonder, wonder what the draw odds were last year in Unit 16E. better than the 4% we drew with. I know. Man, we should have applied somewhere else. Are they going to get us a mic? I don't know, this is probably more entertaining than talking about it. <laughs> I, I doubt that, but because if not, pretty soon one of us are going to have to auction off some coordinates here. I've got your GPS right here. <laughs> uh, be careful.
careful with Corey. He says, well, can you send me your old GPS trails so I can kind of see where we're going to be? Because I'd hunted that unit three years, three times before that. And now everyone is like, yeah, I know exactly where you were. And I'm thinking, that's how Corey paid for his last outcome. He <laughs> sold all my GPS coordinates that he had me send him. So if he calls you and says, hey, you know, if we're hunting together, I need some of this intel, be careful. Hey, you offered it up. I took it. That's all. all what right. happens after that is fair game. All right. So that was t two years ago. Kind of feeling bad Corey won't apply with me anymore. <laughs> he gets tired of sitting around camp. 87 miles in seven days. Thanks called in you. three elk. Yeah. And then we had to go and hunt like ten, 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 ten time world champion elk caller called in three elk, right? Is that my fault? <laughs> Was he just blaming me for the fact that only three elk came in? They were the only three elk in the unit. They were? <laughs> Oh, there you go, Corey. You got, a, you got a mic. I know how much you love those things. When my camera guys would mic you up, you'd be pulling them off and stuffing them in your... That doesn't work. <laughs> but you did kill a bull. We did. You didn't call him in, though. <laughs> right. So does it still count? Oh, well, heck, yeah, okay. I thought it was better than anything we'd done. It was better than anything we did those previous seven days, yes. Mm -hmm. Guaranteed. No, it was, uh... Unless you like hiking. <laughs> We've had a good hiking trip. Uh, he wore me out so bad I took one day off. You know, when you're over 50, you can take a day off. Hell with it. If he doesn't like it, let him go by himself, right? You know, I sat around. Then we found elk and took you back. And still didn't kill them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, they're just over the next drainage. Oh, they're over this next drainage. It felt like when I used to ask my dad when I was five years old, that's how much over there. He's heard that before, evidently. I'm just thinking it's only two more years before I'm 50, so I'm going to be able to get a day off in <laughs> No, Donnie, you can do that. And if he complains, just leave him. You know, pack up camp, and then he comes back to camp, it's all packed up, and you're back home. So I do, I do have to give Randy props because we had hunted 20-some days up to that point before I got to New Mexico with Randy, and I had eaten Mountain House pretty much every day. And we got to New Mexico, and Randy pulls out these perfectly freeze-dried, well, they weren't freeze-dried, just frozen, frozen. and vacuum-sealed, like gourmet meals of lasagna, home-cooked lasagna, and he just put it in a pot and boil it up, and we had lasagna, we had steak, we had a lot of things other than mountain house. When, when you get my age, you'll realize that you don't subside on mountain house and live very long. I hope there's not a mountain house person there. That wasn't a very good endorsement. But my job, you know, most of my sponsors, I tell them within one season I can ruin your brand. <laughs> That's not true. He's Terry Queen's best representative. <laughs> Speaking, I showed you on Robert. Any of you on Instagram? Right? Dairy Queen follows 85 people on Instagram. National Dairy Queen of like 430,000 followers on their Instagram page. They follow I'm, 85. I'm one of the 85. <laughs> I found that out a couple weeks ago. And I sent a screenshot to my son, who is a business consultant, and he's like, Dad, you better quit now. It's all downhill. You've reached the pinnacle of your career. 
<laughs> so, but no, that's all good food because of my wife. See. Well, yeah. you're you're the middleman there. Oh, that's about it. If I hadn't hunted with you, I wouldn't have got to eat your wife's cooking, so I'm giving you credit. Well, that's true, and if her boyfriend didn't fill in for me, well, I'd probably be divorced. And then I wouldn't have a good wife to do this cooking. She does it to get me out of the house. Whatever works. Yeah, people are like, how do you stay married with your calendar that you have? And I don't you, think it's a calendar as much as a personality they're questioning. Probably, but... So my wife and my cousin Zeph is sitting right here, so he knows my wife, and uh, she doesn't say much, but when she does, I, I, I see there's quite a few women in here, so I'm going to say this with a little... And cameras, keep that yeah. in mind. I'm say this with a little bit of concern. It, it could go either way, husband or wife, but you, at my house anyhow, it's always the wife who says, or else. Have you ever figured out what or else means? I don't want to. Everybody who I talk to, who every guy I know who now understands what or else means, is divorced. <laughs> every guy who doesn't know what or else means has been married for multiple years. And probably happily. Yeah. <laughs> but when you get to or else, wherever that is, I'm not going there. Boyfriends, no boyfriends, I don't care. I get to hunt. <laughs> can't believe I say that stuff. I can't do that. And, and uh, Zeb and I have this other uncle. He was in the truck with me one time when I was joking about my wife and her boyfriend. And uh, Zeb will know which one I'm talking about. He said, you know, that's not real funny. I came home from a fishing trip and the boyfriend was still there. So I don't want to joke about that. But, right, Zeb? <laughs> but my back is getting sore and I'm going to have to start lying here pretty soon. Is that thing going to work? Did the guy leave? Any smoke break or something? I got four minutes to go start judging a food contest here. You're late. I'm late? Yeah. I was late. I was I'm, I'm here to escort you. So, Corey, you want to show? Oh, yeah. hey. Oh, yeah. We have that. It's not. All right, folks. Enjoy. The world's greatest alcohol. You're going to learn so much. Very, very